Hello and welcome to Sinobabble, the Chinese history podcast. This is episode one of the very first series, which is going to be all about the history of 20th century China. My name is Eddie, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the background of the 20th century, which I'll try and cover over the first two episodes. So in actual fact, we're not starting in the 20th century. We're going to go a little bit back, and I do have my reasons for doing this. So first of all, as you may or may not know, up until 1911, China had been presided over by a series of imperial dynasties for about 2,000 years. The last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, which we'll be talking about today, ended in 1911. So in fact, 1900 was a year of pretty much no significance for China in the long run. So starting in 1900 would be pointless. So why not start in 1911? Well, to understand the lead up to the revolution that took place in 1911, often known as the Xinhai Revolution, we need to understand all the events that led up to it. And that's what we'll be talking about in today's episode. Once we have that background and context for the revolution, in the next episode, we're going to be talking about all of the important people. Chinese history has a lot of names, and unfortunately, all of them seem to be equally relevant. So hopefully dividing the first two episodes into events versus people will clarify the situation a little bit. Basically, what I want to do is give all the events that happened first and then tell you who was involved with them, what the social, cultural and intellectual trends were, and how this basically led to the revolution and founding of the Republic in 1912. Most of the people who are central to the major events of the 20th century were either born in the 19th century, were active in the 19th century, or were the students of those people who were active in the 19th century. So hopefully by the end of the first two episodes, this will all make sense. So with that introduction over, let's jump right into the first episode. I just want to start by giving a bit of a background to the last imperial dynasty of China. This last dynasty, known as the Qing dynasty, were descended from a tribe known as the Jurchen, who held from northeast China and had briefly presided over the Jin dynasty in the 12th and 13th centuries before being defeated and pushed out by the Mongolian Empire and the dying remnants of the southern Song dynasty. Spreading out into communities across Heilongjiang, Jilin and Liaoning provinces in modern China, collectively known as Manchuria today, one Manchu tribe produced a young nobleman called Nurhachi, who would go on to defeat the weakening Ming dynasty and establish the Qing dynasty in China proper in 1644. Following a lengthy period of consolidation, the Qing dynasty was able to flourish as one of the largest and most powerful empires in Eurasia. Throughout the reigns of some of China's most famous and longest presiding emperors, such as Kangxi and Qianlong, the empire expanded to its greatest heights, and China's international trade reached new limits. A strict control over interaction with foreigners meant that the Qing benefited from new knowledge and foreign silver whilst maintaining secure borders. The Manchus themselves managed to retain a certain level of distinction from their Han Chinese subjects, while adopting and adapting to certain cultural traditions such as language, religion and elite educational and bureaucratic life. The Han Chinese, however, though they made up the majority of the population, were never allowed to forget their subjugation and were marked off from their ethnic overlords through the adoption of certain practices and customs, for example, the adoption of the Q hairstyle. That was a certain hairstyle where the front of the head was shaved and the back was braided into a long ponytail. 
Disdain for foreign rulers and loyalty to the Ming Dynasty had kept many scholarly officials and learned Han Chinese from serving the Qing Dynasty. An anti-Manchu sentiment brewed under the surface throughout the 17th and 18th centuries, occasionally erupting into violence. The Manchus faced similar problems that had plagued the dynasties before them. Corruption leading to worsening natural disasters, banditry, decadence and internal strife. However, this only came to a head with the death of the Jiaqing Emperor and the ascendancy of Western naval imperialism, which is where our story begins. So we'll be starting our story at the beginning of what's commonly known as China's century of humiliation, which begins with the First Opium War. To give you some background to the outbreak of this conflict, China had traded with the West in various forms since the 16th century, although there had been other foreign presence in China before that in the form of missionaries, but we'll get to their impact later. Foreigners were kept at an arm's length, and they were prevented from learning Chinese, entering China, or even negotiating favourable trading terms. Considering the otherwise global success of these European groups, the conditions of their life and trade in China must have been relatively humiliating. In his book God's Chinese Son, Jonathan Spence does a good job of illustrating the living conditions of these foreigners living just outside the city of Canton in Guangdong province at the start of the Opium War. Although that book actually has nothing to do with the Opium War, it still gives us a good overview of what it was like to be a foreigner at the time. The area that they lived in was very small. It took about two hours to walk from end to end. Their houses were cramped and the streets were very narrow. If they were lucky, they could climb to the top of the walls and peek into Canton City, where they would see wide streets, huge Chinese residences and beautiful gardens. Only men were allowed to live in the foreign quarters. And when they tried to sneak their women in, the local Chinese protested heavily However, it wasn't all bad. Despite the cramped conditions and obvious discrimination, there was a lot of money to be made by foreign traders. They could trade in tea, silk, fur, furniture, but of course, most importantly, was the opium trade, which Spence does hint at in his book. The production of opium had actually been banned in China in 1800 and smoking banned in 1813. However, addiction had still spread rapidly across the country, becoming a serious social problem by the early 19th century. The opium trade had actually been heavily pushed, especially by the British, as a way to redress the trade imbalance, which saw silver draining into China at the expense of British coffers. This trade in opium actually continued after the ending of the East India Company's monopoly over trade with China in 1834. As silver began to flow out of China in greater quantities and the opium crisis took on greater urgency, the Daoguang Emperor decided to stamp out opium altogether and employed scholarly official Lin Zexu to carry out this task. In a series of measures that started peacefully enough, Lin, or Commissioner Lin as he became known, employed a line of Confucian morals and values to try and dissuade and punish opium users and dealers. As appeals to reason and fair play fell on deaf ears, Lin resorted to stricter methods with foreigners, which ended in a blockade of the foreigners in Canton in their factories and the dumping of over 20,000 chests of opium into the sea. Tensions mounted as the British tried to go to Hong Kong to continue their trade, but were harassed by the locals, who were increasingly encouraged by Qing officials after the British had somehow caused the death of one of the locals there. Facing humiliation over treatment of foreign nationals and having to pay indemnities and guarantees for opium revenues lost, the British government authorised the mobilisation of a fleet to exact reparations from the Chinese in 1839. 
And that's when the outbreak of the war really begins. A full British fleet commanded by George Eliot arrived in Canton in June 1840. As they made their way up the east coast, leaving reserves at Canton and taking the garrison at Joseon, an island in Zhejiang province, the Chinese imperial court failed to take the British force seriously, that is, until they reached the Baihe, or White River. Feeling an attack on the capital imminent, they dispatched Governor-General Qi Shan to negotiate with the foreigners, having banished Commissioner Lin to the island of Ili, a famous place where most officials who were banished from the kingdom were sent, for his incompetence with dealing with the foreigners. Qi Shan was not to fare any better, however, as China's pacification without appeasement tactics clashed with British interests. Feeling the pressure to push back the barbarian pirates, Qi Shan agreed to British occupation of Hong Kong, and a small indemnity payment in January of 1841. Tempers flared on both sides. Qi Shan was marched out of Canton in chains and disgrace, and Elliot received harsh criticism from the Foreign Secretary, Lord Palmerston, for only managing to get a dry, rocky island with barely a house on it, much to the vexation of then 22-year-old Queen Victoria. He was swiftly replaced by Henry Pottinger, who arrived in China in August of 1841. Pottinger's instructions were clear. He was to extract high reparations from none other than the emperor himself. In the meantime, the emperor had employed new noblemen to defend China, and fighting had resumed in Canton, though with no luck on the Chinese front. These events, while not of any military significance, precipitate some of the internal unrest and anti-foreign sentiment that would erupt into full-scale chaos in the following decades. Pottinger sailed up the east coast, taking Xiamen, Ningbo, and again, the island of Joseon. The Chinese were confident that as the British moved inland, their superior armed forces would quickly overwhelm the foreigners. However, continual blunders on the side of the Chinese meant that Pottinger almost walked into the old capital of Nanjing in the south. To avoid further bloodshed, some officials decided to convince the emperor that the British were merely mercenary in their goals and did not seek to interfere in China's politics. The Daoguang Emperor and Queen Victoria approved the Treaty of Nanjing, ratified in August of 1842. This was China's first official treaty with a Western country, and saw China agree to an indemnity payment of 21 million, the opening of five treaty ports, the abolition of the Kohong monopoly, which controlled opium and other trade with foreigners in Canton, and the cessation of Hong Kong to the British Empire in perpetuity. And thus, the Opium War ended, China's first real clash with the West. However, in terms of foreign policy, defeat by the British wasn't actually that much of a problem for the Qing dynasty. The main concern continued to be the survival of the dynasty, which meant dealing with the rising tide of internal problems came first. A huge growth in China's population over the preceding few centuries had been met with little action on behalf of the government. As competition for land increased amongst migrant populations moving to China's fertile south to escape poor harvests, punitive laws and increasing corruption turned many to a life of crime. Salt smuggling rings, secret societies and triads all flourished, especially in the post-opium war period, where social cohesion all but disintegrated, especially in the south, which had always lain just a little bit out of the central government's full control. The triads were a set of decentralised autonomous secret societies, united by their sense of brotherhood, illegal trading activities and anti-Manchu sentiment. Initially more of a haven for social outcasts, the triads became more active after 1842, 
outright fighting Qing forces consistently in Guangdong and Guangxi provinces. They were also able to spread anti-Qing propaganda, well received by downtrodden Chinese peasants who felt the increasing squeeze of China's corrupt elite. The elite had their own problems, of course. While the population and number of educated men had risen, the number of official positions within the imperial government and the number of degree certificates that were handed out by the government had not increased. While competition intensified among young men looking to move up the ranks, the selling of degrees became ever more popular, while some people turned to lowbrow employment outside the bureaucracy, such as tax farming and pettifogging, which is a type of civil court procedure. Those who did manage to attain a degree were often stuck with lower official positions, such as acting as someone's clerk or PA, although they were often well paid enough, with many of them squeezing money out of China's lowest stratum through punitive taxes. So this context of harsh climate, huge population and basically lack of employment is the context in which our next story begins, a story which serves as the introduction to China's internal strife during the 19th century. This is the story of China's most devastating civil war to that point. Though it was a large and bloody affair, it's actually a story best told through the life of one man. This civil war is known as the Taiping Rebellion, and the man whose name we need to know is Hong Xiuquan. So, who was Hong Xiuquan? He was a third son and promising scholar of a relatively middle-class rural family in Guangdong province, who lived around 40 miles from Canton. His family were part of the Hakka people, a tribe who migrated from central China in the 17th century and who had their own dialect and customs. For example, their women didn't bind their feet. So by 1836, Hong had passed the qualifying exam to become an official. However, he failed the licentiate exam, which is the exam that would have allowed him to wear robes and gain basically more respect as a member of the scholarly elite. He had already failed this exam twice. Now he was in Canton, preparing to enter the exam hall once more, when a preacher handed him a book containing a selected works from the Bible, including the story of Noah and of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hong flipped through the good words for exhorting the age, but he didn't pay them much mind. He kept the tracks and failed the exam for the third time. While preparing for his fourth attempt at the exam at home, Yes, he would have prepared for a fourth and even a fifth time if he hadn't turned to a life of rebel leader. Hong had a strange dream in which an older man gave him a sword and a younger man, whom he addressed as elder brother, told him that he was to use it to slay evil spirits. It wasn't until a friend borrowed his religious tracts and told Hong to read them carefully that he realised that the men in his dream were God and Jesus. And thus he came to the sensible conclusion that he was the son of God himself. In 1843, almost immediately, Hong began preaching. He was well-educated, charismatic and eloquent, ironically a result of his Confucian upbringing. And people who originally thought he was mad were quickly converted. His close friend and fellow failed scholar, Feng Yushen, was also taken in by this message and actually goes off for a while preaching on his own and converting followers for Hong's purpose. Meanwhile, Hong sticks close to his home, converting and teaching to pay his way, wandering around Guangdong and Guangxi provinces, and generally pissing off officials until about 1849, he settles in the Thistle Mountains with around 10,000 of his followers. Now, the Thistle Mountains are in a relatively poor area of Guangxi province. 
And this is also an area that's filled with many bandit groups and secret societies, such as the triads that we mentioned earlier. While Hong had initially embraced Confucian ideals in order to attract converts, he quickly became anti-Confucian and anti-Manchu in his ideology. Till this point, Hong had managed to operate in the open, converting some prominent families, while Qing officials dealt with the more pernicious bandits, pirates and triad operatives. However, by 1850, they were on the Qing's radar. It was time to get moving, and the time for Hong's revolution to begin. In 1851, Hong proclaimed himself the Heavenly King of Taiping Tianguo, the Heavenly Kingdom of Supreme Peace. With over 20,000 followers, a lot of money, arms and supplies, Hong moved out of the Thistle Base and up towards Hunan Province. From 1851 to 1853, they took the cities of Yongnan, Yuezhou, Hankou, Wuchang and Anqing, arriving at Nanjing in March 1953. The city was infiltrated shortly and the Manchu residents who didn't commit suicide were slaughtered, resulting in about 50,000 dead Manchus. The Taiping Utopia seemed to get off to a good start. They held exams based on the Bible, they had segregation of the sexes, and bans on vices such as opium, alcohol, prostitution. Plus a landlord that gave everyone their fair share, while ensuring the very rich kingdom stayed rich. However, the Taiping only held on until 1864. So what led to its downfall and its ultimate failure of its mission? Well, first of all, Hong's trusted advisors and generals died one after another, leaving Hong's faults as a leader exposed. He retreated to palace life, while the non-Hakka population of the city defected under the inflexible laws, and rural residents simply ignored them. The Taiping also failed to fully utilise anti-Manchu sentiment, failing to link up with other rebel groups or even to appeal to Western sentiments due to their eccentric biblical interpretation and their insistence on the ban of opium. In the end, an alliance between loyal Qing army forces called the Xiang and the American mercenary army known as the ever-victorious army was the Taiping's downfall. When the city of Nanjing was finally taken in July 1864, the 100,000 Taiping believers chose to commit suicide rather than surrender. The death toll of the entire rebellion is estimated to be between 20 and 30 million people. This was actually the first of many large-scale rebellions that were to take place throughout the 19th century in China, which we'll go on to cover now. There's a lot of debate surrounding how these different rebellions are linked to one another, to secret society movements, to the triads, and to external relations with the West. We won't really be covering all of that, as I really just want to give a background today. But I'll bring it up when I feel it's relevant, as it's something that we can consider, perhaps in a later series. Hong's Taiping Rebellion is probably the most well-known and studied of the revolts and rebellions of the 19th century, but in fact there were many uprisings occurring at the same time or just after the Taiping that, though smaller in scale, were equally as threatening to the stability of the dynasty. Many local uprisings stemmed from the sort of issues that I mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast. The rise in population, competition for land, natural disasters, corruption... Generally speaking, small revolts were quite common, though some were more notable for their scale. I just want to detail some of the most well-known disturbances to give you an idea as to what the Qing was up against, and why a second opium war may not have seemed like such a big deal to them, as well as how the Qing managed to stumble on for another half a century. Let's start with the Nian Rebellion. 
The Nian Rebellion differs from the Taiping in that there was no clear ideological motivations behind the uprising, despite the fact that they started around the same time, namely 1851, and that the Nian even managed to hold on for four years longer than the Taiping until 1868. Some historians have tried to show a link between the Nian and secret societies that were prolific at the time, and that we discussed earlier. Indeed, both acted as a sort of refuge for the poor and destitute. Most of the Nian's ranks were those fleeing disaster or poverty-stricken regions, or they were just aimless young men who were unable to start families of their own who were turned to a life of crime. There is some suggestion, too, of a link with the triads, but it could just be that the illegal activities they engaged in happened to overlap. It's certainly possible that illegal sects such as the White Lotus were sources of recruits for the Nian, but an outright link in aim and ideology is difficult to support. It's certainly a controversial argument among Chinese historians. The Nian also differed from the Taiping in terms of organisation. The heart of the Nian Rebellion was located at the borders between Shandong, Anhui, Jiangsu and Henan provinces and was bordered by the Yellow River to the north and the Huai River to the south. Geographically, it wasn't too far from the Taiping base of Nanjing, but the Nian were never as organised or goal-oriented as the Taiping. Though they did eventually elect a leader, a landlord and smuggler, Zhang Luoxing, and managed to organise themselves into something resembling banners, they employed mainly guerrilla tactics and continued to plunder the countryside to make a living, only adding to the misery that had contributed to the uprising in the first place. On the death of their leader, Zhang, Nian forces became ever more fluid, ranging as far as Xi'an in the northwest, and ever evading the Qing troops led by Zhang Guofun, who was the hero that actually put the Taiping Rebellion down. Eventually, the Nian Rebellion was brought down by official Li Hongjiang, who we'll be discussing in detail in episode 2. In the end, no doubt the aimlessness of the Nian had a large role to play in their collapse of what was essentially a large-scale peasant rebellion. Like I said, it was more noted for its size rather than it being out of the ordinary. However, as more large-scale rebellions like this one continue to take place, the Qing forces gradually became less loyal to the central government, more loyal to local officials, and were generally just fed up. Another example of rebellions that directly threatened Qing rule was a set of rebellions that took place around the same time as the Taiping and Nian. They can be grouped together under the title of Muslim revolts or Muslim uprisings. However, it should be noted that there was no link between these rebellions, and indeed, even though they fought under the title of Muslim revolts, the causes and even the main players may not be so obvious. There are two main revolts of significant scale, the Panthe Rebellion in Yunnan province and the Dungang Revolt in northwest China. These revolts prominently feature members of China's Muslim ethnic minority group, known as the Hui people. There had been Muslims in China since the Tang Dynasty, 618 to 907. This is when trade routes, collectively known as the Silk Road, opened up trade with Western Asian peoples, some of whom settled in China, mixing with the local population. Further migration occurred under Mongol rule during the 13th century, especially in the southwest border areas. In Yunnan province, the Muslims who migrated acted as soldiers and administrators for the Mongols and continued to attain top-level bureaucratic positions in the region into the Qing dynasty. Though tensions between Han and Hui existed for generations, 
the Yunnan rebellion was precipitated by a fresh wave of more assertive Han to the region in the 19th century due to the population increase leading to land starvation in the interior of China. Between 1839 to 1856, the Han grew increasingly intolerant of the Hui, leading to the Kunmin Massacre of 1856, in which several thousand Hui were slaughtered in three days. The Muslim population was quick to respond, assembling forces and capturing the city of Dali, establishing the kingdom of Pingnan, or the state which pacifies the south. Their leader, Du Wenxiu, was a member of the educated elite, and borrowed from both Chinese and Muslim tradition in founding the ideology of this new state. However, relations with the people in bordering nations also gave the kingdom a multi-ethnic outlook, and the attraction to other ethnic minorities in and around Yunnan strengthened the state's anti-Qing bent. The difficult terrain and the ongoing problems in Guizhou, and with the Nian Rebellion, and with the Taiping Rebellion, meant that the Pingnan state was able to last until 1873, at which time Dali finally fell to Qing forces and Du was executed. The northwestern Muslim revolts have a similar ethnic tension as a background, but seemingly innocuous beginnings. A fight between a Han and a Hui trader over the price of some bamboo poles escalated to the burning of Muslim villages and the slaughter of whole families in 1862. A drain of forces to pacify rebellions in the North China Plain and in Nanjing meant that the local militia fought disorganised Qing forces evenly for years. There was general confusion and disorientation, with some Han turning against Qing forces and some local rebels turning against each other. Eventually, a scholarly official of relatively low rank named Zhuo Zoltang was able to pacify the region, massacring the rebel leaders and bringing the country back into a unified state by 1878. These rebellions, plus other localised rebellions, such as that of the Miao people in Guizhou from 1854 to 1873, left millions dead and the empire poor and in disarray. However, to the central government, the most important thing was unity. Using this moment to try and reassert China's position, the imperial government tried to undergo a restoration and self-strengthening movement, which we'll talk about in more detail in the next episode. The most important thing to know for now is that this self-strengthening movement ultimately failed, leaving China open once again to internal and external strife and upheaval. Only this time, the Qing dynasty would not be able to survive. For a while, though, after this series of intense internal upheavals and external conflicts, the Qing was amazingly able to bounce back, if only for a brief period and if only superficially. It's worth mentioning that while these conflicts were raging, a second mini-opium war had actually taken place. The British had been pushing to have their Treaty of Nanjing extended under the Most Favoured Nation Clause, and under the pretext of an illegal boarding of a British ship by Chinese officials, which led to the arrests of several British sailors, the British and French teamed up in a fresh assault on Chinese sovereignty in 1856. Until 1858, the British fleet did a repeat of the First Opium War, sailing north until they reached Tianjin. They signed the Treaty of Tianjin, stipulating the opening up of 10 new ports, the lease of the new territories of Hong Kong to the British, free travel for missionaries to allow them to carry out their work, audiences with the emperor on request, as well as dual language treaties. Possibly the most damaging clause was the re-legalisation of the opium trade. The Qing tried to resist, even managing to hold off and arrest some British troops. 
The Allied forces pushed right back, however, and in a true show of bravery, the Emperor fled for Manchuria, leaving his brother, Prince Gong, to negotiate on his behalf. As the foreign forces burned the Yuan Mingyuan, or Summer Palace, to the ground, the prince had no choice left but to capitulate, and agreed to uphold the Treaty of Tianjin in 1860. Despite these setbacks, however, the Qing marched on, almost fully intact, barring the treaty ports. The death of the emperor in 1861 led to the appointing of a new infant emperor, as well as the ascension of new powers in the court that would eventually determine the fate of the empire. The decisive action they took to restore the might of the failing dynasty will be discussed more in detail in the next episode. But needless to say, like I said, the self-strengthening movement and the period of relative peace that went with it were not to last. Efforts to reform China were half-hearted, and fresh conflict with the West and those who had embraced Western-style modernization was soon to burst the bubble of a very brief interlude. The new wave of conflict that proved the weakness of China's self-strengthening movement didn't actually concern China directly, but rather those areas China considered vassal states. The Chinese emperor had a long history of playing big brother to neighbouring peoples to the east and south, and somewhat less successfully to the north. It's quite similar to the stereotypical mafioso relationships you see played out in films. China provided protection from internal and external threat in exchange for recognition in the form of elaborate gifting ceremonies and the ability to dabble in politics. However, as China was increasingly left behind on the world stage, her ability to hold up her end of the bargain fell through, leaving vassals open to imperialism and meaning China ended up losing power and face. The first incidence involves France's ambitions in Vietnam, at the time Annam. Vietnam was so imbued with Chinese tradition that they actually honoured Confucius and Mencius, and they paid tribute to the Qing court every four years. French missionaries had been at work there since the middle of the 18th century, and the murder of French missionaries coupled with China's weak state and France's recent victory in the Second Opium War gave the French an excuse to invade. They pushed a strategy that would become a regular pattern. In 1864, they recognised Vietnam as an independent nation, incorporating French officials into their bureaucracy and opening up the country to French control in the form of greater missionary and trade rights. While some urged caution, most of the Qing court felt that this was the perfect time to test out China's newly developed military strength on the Western imperialists from whom they had borrowed the technology. In 1884, while the more cautious officials were still trying to negotiate, a naval battle broke out between French and Chinese ships in Fuzhou. The entire Chinese fleet was sunk in seven minutes. The French dominated Vietnam now, providing a clear-cut model that would be emulated by the British in Burma not long after. The next assault on Chinese extraterritorial powers came from Japan, another former little brother. Unlike China, Japan had fully embraced westernization since the 1850s, although originally, like China, not of their own accord. The extent to which this embrace was predicated on coercion isn't too important, however. What is important was that Japan had made vast improvements in their military capabilities, and China was about to find out just how vast. Japan started flexing its military might when an official visit to China revealed just how backward the country and the people reigning it were. Japan took an opportunity to poke at the Ryukyu Islands and Taiwan in the 1870s. When the reaction they received was mild at best, they set their sights on another of China's vassals, Korea. 
Korea was another kingdom that had decided to shirk Western influence, to the extent that they actually relied on China to broker trade and peace agreements with Western nations on their behalf, and acted suspiciously of Japanese emissaries who wore Western clothing. Japan followed Western patterns of submission. A force of arms forced Korea to sign a treaty in 1867 that recognised Korea as a self-governing state. China didn't mind, as long as Korea still recognised itself as a vassal. But tensions on the peninsula continued to mount as the Korean court faced intrigue after coup throughout the 1880s. In 1894, a peasant rebellion led both Chinese and Japanese to mount arms under the pretext of saving the Korean king. The Japanese got there first, and despite China having the advantage of surprising the enemy, lack of preparedness and the superiority of Japanese forces led to a complete annihilation of both the standing army and China's brand new naval fleet. The Japanese were particularly ruthless, a scene that would play itself out again merely half a century later. The ensuing Treaty of Shinmonoseki completely humiliated China. Both Korea and the area of Liaodong in Manchuria were ceded, and four more treaty ports were open and put essentially under Japanese control. Worse than the 200 million tails in indemnities China was forced to pay was the realisation that it was no longer the big fish in the isolated pond of Asia. China stood at the brink of the world, about to topple, and it would take only two more major incidences to push it over the edge. In today's episode, we're going to end by talking about the first of the two major incidences, and hopefully by episode three, we would have moved into the 20th century and will be able to talk about the last of the incidences, namely the Shinhai Revolution. First, let's talk about the Boxer Uprising. After another abortive attempt at reform in 1898, the rule of the emperor was overthrown by a central conservative faction at court. The makeup of this faction and how it came to consolidate its power will be discussed in the next episode. What's important here is how their attitude towards foreigners fomented further rebellion. Relations with foreigners living in China at the end of the 19th century were ambivalent. While treaty ports flourished with new factories and the ruling elite continued to rely on Western knowledge to improve technical standards, missionary activity was viewed with avid suspicion by the average Chinese. Small peasant uprisings combined the common ills of starvation and disaster with suspicion and hatred of strange foreigners who were actively trying to undo native Chinese tradition. As tension flared and more missionaries were killed, local officials were ordered to keep the rebels under control. However, this sentiment quickly changed when the leaders of the uprising became overtly nationalistic, openly supporting the Qing dynasty. Many of those who participated in the uprisings were leftovers from the Nian Rebellion or members of the secret societies we spoke about earlier, which caused them to question the true extent of their loyalty to the Qing dynasty. But that doesn't really undermine the seriousness of the damage they caused. What started off as a motley crew of poor peasants and itinerants in Shandong province in 1898, the boxers, so named for their practice of a particular style of Chinese martial art that they quickly organised themselves, they moved northwest to Beijing, killing both Chinese and foreigners rather aimlessly until 1900, when the Qing court decided to put their full weight behind the boxers and declared war on all foreign powers present in China. Needless to say, the attempt to rid China of all foreign presence in one fell swoop backfired. The boxers were disorganised and Chinese generals stalled on entering the fray, leaving the field wide open for a combination of 20,000 French, American, British, Russian and Japanese troops. 
Marching from Tianjin to Beijing and taking back the city by mid-August 1900, these troops forced the boxers and the few loyal Qing army forces into surrender. The Boxer Protocol was signed in 1901, further adding to the humiliation of the Qing, as well as a hefty bill of almost 1 billion taels of gold. The stage was now set for Chinese reformers to make their decisive move. For years, they had been pushing for China's elites to take the matter of Western imperialism and modernization seriously, but their calls had fallen largely on deaf ears. In the next episode, we'll look at how each of these events we discussed today had an impact on China's intellectual sphere. We will look at the officials who dealt with these issues and how each episode influenced the way they thought China could be saved. In this episode, we learned what happened to bring China's last imperial dynasty to its knees. In the next episode, we'll learn just how China went from broken dynasty to republic and who was responsible for taking her there. So that's the end of today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Sinobabble and I hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>